0: I'm Rabbi Nicole Guzik. And I'm Rabbi Erez Sherman. And, and this is Sinai, Sinai Temple, Temple Torah, Torah Talk. Talk, a channel for your daily dose of drash, abyssal Torah, from our home to yours. Catch up with the latest rabbi sermons, Torah classes, rabbinic insights, and more. Follow us now so you don't miss a word. Infusing Torah in our daily lives. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the uh, latest iteration of the liner Learning and Lunch. Um, And uh, for this one, because uh, this is the uh, last before Passover, I thought that it might make sense, um, since I'll be talking actually about uh, Passover probably in the Torah class tomorrow and on Shabbos to talk about Israel and Israel's place in Jewish history, which like most things is more complicated at first than we assume um, because that's true of everything. Everything seems simpler from 30,000 feet. And when you get close, it's more complicated. And Israel in particular, remember that throughout Jewish history, was sometimes real and sometimes aspirational. And one of the things that we know in life is uh, um, that, to quote that great sage Mr. Spock, I remember this from when I was when I was a kid we used to watch the original Star Trek my brothers have gone on to watch the others I've never done that but I wasn't a big science fiction fan but I remember Spock says something at some point remember Spock is the one who's ruled by iron logic and he says something like having is not all is not as satisfying a thing as wanting it is not logical but it is often true and and well I wouldn't say that I mean it's obviously exaggerating to say that about Israel. Um, It is true that Israel existed in the Jewish imagination in a way that it never could exist in the Jewish reality. So starting, first of all, with the Torah itself. Israel is a promise that um, Abraham must find and his descendants must find almost impossible to conceive. Because God is promising them this land which they don't know and is promising it in perpetuity which is something that none of us even now can understand or conceive of Um, and they don't have even when they live on the land which after all Isaac does Isaac is famous as the only patriarch that never leaves the land of Israel they still don't have any kind of settled society it's still not the state of the Jews, it's just, you know, you happen to have land on this hill instead of having land across the plains of Moab. Um, And we don't get the approximation of a real Jewish society and or state until after um, the Exodus, Moses dies and Joshua enters the land. Now, I will say, but I'm not going to make this the topic of, of today for um, obvious reasons, that a, one of the prevailing modern theories of how Israel in the time of Joshua became Israel is that whatever group left Egypt met up with groups that were already in Israel and formed some kind of confederation. Um, and so there were perhaps people in Israel who knew it as a state, but certainly not as a Jewish state and certainly not as Israel. But what that means is that Israel started as an idea before it became a country. And that means that it will never be able to fulfill its original purpose in the same way that America can because America also started as an ideal before it became a country and so America can never fulfill its ideal because that's the nature of reality as reality never fulfills the ideal that um, that precedes it And so you will always hear people not living up to this or that American principle enunciated by our founding fathers. Um, And the same is true in Israel throughout history, which is why those books that are located in Israel, like Judges and Samuel and Kings, um, and Joshua too, obviously, at the beginning of, of all those, the historical books, which are part of the Tanakh, they're a little bit of a chronicle of disappointment. Um, There are good kings, but the good kings, one one of the really interesting things that people don't always pay attention to is that the good kings get good press, but if you read between the lines, they don't always rule for that long. Like Omri rules for, I think, 36 years, and the, the, author of the Tanakh doesn't like him, so it doesn't say very much about him, but here's a guy who ruled for decades, um, and, uh, and Josiah, who's a big hero, um, dies in battle after uh, a brief time, and it lets you know that the reality does not comport with the way that the author of the Tanakh wanted it um, wanted it to be. And so Israel, from the beginning, is both an aspiration and a disappointment. Um, just like our kids, an aspiration and a disappointment. No, I'm just kidding. Um, uh, just like when we were kids, let me put it that way. Uh, the um, The idea, the idea is that that Israel will be a certain way, and it will be this country ruled by the laws of God, and it will have a just ruler. And what happens, in fact, is that it is a country that is riven by the realpolitik of the world around it. Remember what makes Israel such an important place is it is, above Israel is Mesopotamia, below Israel is Egypt, which means that Israel is the land bridge between the two great empires of the ancient world. So it's not surprising that you get, first of all, that you get both Egyptian and Mesopotamian influence, because if you're next to a giant country and a hugely influential one, as we know, you're going to be influenced by it. Look at the countries around Russia. Look at the country, you know, look at the countries of Latin America. Look at the, all, all you're going to be influenced by the giant country around you even if they don't invade you and also giant countries have a tendency to invade little ones along the way to doing something else so mesopotamia the assyrians the, when i say mesopotamia the assyrians invaded the north babylonians ended up invading the south the egyptians for a long time ruled kanaan right that was basically an egyptian province um so it's not surprising that it was really hard for Israel to be the kind of country that was prophesied by uh, the prophets when in fact often the prophets themselves had to give advice to the kings about whether they should give in to this power or give in to that power or negotiate or not negotiate on and on and on and on. in that sense, uh, we were given a very, very tricky and problematic country, um, a little country surrounded by major powers. And that's true even to today, as you know. So um, the, the, the general uh, power, Strategy of Israel was to try to play different countries off each other. Um, and again, that's not so different from today. Um, once Israel is established, though, and especially remember the first time, so just to put this in your mind as a sort of very, very rough timeline, Okay, Israel is only united under David and Solomon. Under Solomon's kids already, it splits into two kingdoms, the Northern Kingdom and the Southern Kingdom. That's about the year, somewhere in the 900s, okay? In 722, in other words, about 200, 250 years later, which doesn't sound like a lot when you're talking the span of thousands of years, but basically, as long as America has been a country, so it's a long time for people who live, who are alive in that time. For all that time, both the North and the South felt very deeply that even though the other one was a lousy, no good Nick, right? The North didn't like the South, the South didn't like the North, but they both felt very much that they were the true Israel that God loved. Along come the Assyrians in 722, and they destroy the northern kingdom. That's where you lose the ten tribes. And the cataclysm is almost unimaginable, because they never believed that Israel, beloved by God, could be destroyed by another kingdom. It had never happened, right? And we're used to that idea now, but it had never happened in history. And that's why... When we talk about the 10 Lost Tribes, most of the 10 Lost Tribes probably, we don't know, probably went south because if it was a choice of being among the Assyrians who were killing them or among the southern, um, among the family that you hate, you go to the family that you hate. Um, And the, uh, the southern kingdom then sort of redoubles its belief that it can't be destroyed. Because, okay, God got angry, obviously destroyed the northerners who we always knew weren't the true Israel, all those tribes. Judea, Judah was the tribe in the south with the capital in Jerusalem, which is where David founded the capital when we were all united. So obviously we're the real thing. And then of course in 586, they get destroyed too by the Babylonians who had taken over from the Assyrians as the big empire in the world. I, I, don't, I think it's probably true to say that, that the Jewish tradition never recovered from that shock, um, even though we't necess- we don't even know about it, but that was the original "You're not invulnerable. God doesn't actually al- God is not always going to protect you. And it, it gave the Jewish people a very different relationship to the land of Israel. Israel was now this place that If we are good enough, God will one day bring us back the way that God did in olden times. There were no olden times in Israel before Israel was destroyed. There was the exodus, there was the conquest of the land, and now we're here and we'll always be here, and all of a sudden we're not here anymore. So the Babylonian exile, um, which you can read about, you know, How they sat by the river and wept um, for Zion, that was the, the, the great initial trauma of the Jewish people. And it made Israel now a place that you had to deserve. It was not a place that God had just promised you, it's a place that God had promised you, that God would bring back to you, if you were a certain way. And we don't really feel as much because we don't study as much like the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. But in the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, you know, they, um, and under under the Persian King Cyrus, because it went remember Assyria, Babylonia, Persia—that was the sequence of empires. So under the Persian King Cyrus, Cyrus said basically, "You can go back." And not surprisingly, to moderns we understand this. Um, some people didn't go back; they were very comfortable where they are, right? They were fine. They had built lives and communities. 150 years later, they built lives and families and communities, and the locals treated them well. And and so, but some did go back, um, sort of rebuilt life in Israel. And then there is, to the extent that we know a lot about this period, but we don't know that much. There's a lot of internecine fighting among Jews in Israel. I mean, look, the Hanukkah story which takes part in this interregnum between destruction and destruction, that is, between the destruction of the Babylonians and the destruction of the Romans, the Hanukkah story is largely a story of Jews fighting Jews. We don't like to say that, but that's largely what it is, right, the Hellenizing Jews and the not Hellenizing Jews. And that is not the first time or the last time that Jews fought with each other. And there was an attempt, and it's because and part of the reason that that is so is, first of all, because Jews are human beings and human beings will always fight with each other. It doesn't matter how small the group is. It doesn't matter how small the family is. Um, but the other reason is that there were very different ideas of what Israel was supposed to be. Um, whether Israel was supposed to be a country, that w- uh, whether it was supposed to be the Jewish country or the country of the Jews. For the Hellenizers, it was the country of the Jews that could be like the other countries around it with a Jewish flavor, sort of. But but that didn't mean that they couldn't learn Greek and they couldn't play in the Olympic games and they couldn't do all that stuff. But for the Maccabees and their followers, no, no, no. This is a Jewish country. It's not a country of the Jews. And this is the sort of difference between what uh, what many many years later, the church Father Augustine talked about the heavenly city of Jerusalem and the earthly city of Jerusalem. This existed in Jewish um, thought that there was a, a an ideal Jerusalem and an ideal Israel, and that's the way people thought of it, and then there was this earthly, actual place that had you know politics and war and maneuvering and and everyday life. Um, by the time the rabbis come along, uh, especially, I mean, especially most of the rabbis, not all of them, because at the beginning of the rabbinic era, uh, Jews, even though they didn't really rule Israel so much, they were in Israel, right? Even though it was under Roman rule, um, it was still a Jewish country. But, but early, fairly early in the rabbinic period, in the first century, the Romans destroyed the temple. And then in 135, in the early second century, they exiled the Jews after the failure of the Bar Kokhba revolt. Um, if you can't keep all these revolts in your mind, that's okay. There, was a, there were a lot of them. There was also a major revolt in the diaspora called Trajan's Revolt in, I think, 117. So it wasn't only in Israel that Jews objected to the Roman rule. It was also outside of Israel that Jews didn't like the Romans telling them how to worship and what to worship. But once that happened, once that happened, so Jews learned the lesson of Jewish history, which is it doesn't matter how hard we try militarily to win this land and hold on to this land, since our enemies militarily will always overwhelm us, the only way we can ever be in israel is if god wants us there and god has to bring us to israel because every time we tried militarily to do it first temple second temple we upset god by relying on ourselves and god destroyed us right because remember that in in the rabbinic view the romans and the assyrians and the babylonians their terrible people, but they're also God's instrument, right? Which is a a sort of contradiction. We can just say that God uses bad people for God's purposes when God wants to give it to the Jews. So, um, the rabbis then, for thousands of years, I mean, some of them, on very rare occasions, they would go to Israel. So very famously, Yehuda HaLevi took a pilgrimage to Israel, although we don't know whether he ever actually got there. Ramban Nachmanides famously went to Israel and wrote about how desolate the place was. But the vast majority of Jews didn't go to Israel because you weren't supposed to go to Israel, really, until God brought you there, and we know what happens when we do it on our own. The phrase from the Talmud was that you doche et haketz, which means you force the end. And, and you shouldn't do that. God doesn't like that. God will bring the end, the end meaning the messianic end. The God will bring the end when God chooses to and before then, it's not okay to, uh, to set up a state in Israel because we see what happens when you do. This, by the way, I hope helps you to understand both those ultra-Orthodox Jews that are not Zionist and even those very fringe ultra-Orthodox Jews who ally themselves with Israel's enemies because they believe that that's exactly what Jewish history teaches them which is if you do it by yourself God favors the enemies as God did in 586 and again in 722 and 586 and again in 70 and again in 135 and you could multiply the the dates um, that the whole point is God's waiting for you to be good Jews so God can bring you back when in fact we know that the people who set up the modern state of Israel were not good Jews. Right. I mean, according, obviously, this is not coming from me. This is according to the opinion. They did not observe Shabbat. They did not observe Kashrut. They did not. They did not. And they did not. They were labor, secular Zionists. Um, And so even in Israel today, you have, first of all, the clear polarization of those who believe that this should be a Jewish state, not a state of the Jews, but a Jewish state. And any compromise with that is a betrayal of God's purpose. Um, And so if you say, say like, it's bad that the ultra-Orthodox don't serve in the army, right? You realize that from their point of view, and this is not true of the entire ultra-Orthodox community, but a large percentage of it, what you're asking them to do is directly contrary to Jewish law, Jewish history, and God's will. You're asking them to fight for a state that they know should not be established. And, and the only thing that is keeping it from being destroyed is the fact that there are some ultra-Orthodox Jews in it who are good Jews who study, who are themselves protecting the state. If they didn't, God would destroy it, just like God destroyed all the other states when there weren't good Jews there. So this is uh, a really helpful like shift in in empathy not in conviction empathy just means really understanding the point of view of the other you don't have to agree with it at all but at least you know what the point of view is which is they would say to you what is i mean what are you basing it on you're basing it on like the regular how history normally works and the way history normally works is if you have a good enough army and you have a strong enough force and so on but that's not the way jewish history works because Jewish history is under the special providence of God. If you're not on God's side, the country is going to be destroyed. So that's the really radical two sides of the argument. But what I'm more interested in making clear in a way is that those two arguments filter through all the arguments in Israel. So much of it is about the character of the state. And that's one of the reasons, perhaps the reason, why Israel does not have a constitution, which it was supposed to, by the way, according to the UN mandate, (laughs) go set up a state and you have to have a constitution. and, And Israel agreed, okay, we'll have a constitution. And then they tried to write one. But the vision of what the state was was so radically different in different constituencies. And it wasn't just the ultra Orthodox against the secular left. I mean, there are lots and lots of constituencies. And the differences were so great that they couldn't do it. So they have basic laws, which are, but there's no constitution. So nothing in Israel you can say that's clearly unconstitutional which is very tricky and is is having all sorts of implications now and i don't want to necessarily get into not only do i not want to necessarily i don't want even to get into the debate now but i i do want us to realize that even though there were very traditional jews some famous ones alkali Kalisher, Rav cook some others who were zionists uh, Rav cook was the most famous because he was a great authority and so on and so forth and his descendants actually turned out to be some of the most radical settlers reclaim the biblical land, which is another way of doing it, by the way, which is, yes, it's true, this land does not meet the Jewish, but we're going to now conquer Judea and Samaria as well, or annex Judea and Samaria as well, and we're gonna gradually retake the land and make it into the place that God wants it to be, and then it will be legitimate, right? Which is another school of thought. but all, all of it, we all assumed that Israel and even in our own minds, we a little bit we're a little bit schizophrenic. Because the prayer that we say on Shabbat morning is it's Reshit Smihat Gulatenu. It's the beginning of the flowering of our redemption, which gives Israel a messianic flavor. Well, if it's a messianic flavor, if it's really about the coming of the Messiah, then maybe the guys on the right are correct. They're the ones who are waiting for the Messiah. But if you just say, no, we mean as like a Jewish people or whatever, then you're borrowing language that really doesn't apply to, we're going to have a state where everybody, you know, has equal rights. That is not at all what it meant when it said, the beginning of the flowering of our redemption. Redemption in the Jewish tradition, as those of you who were in the Messianic class last time know, means, you know, that the Jews will be saved by a messianic age or a messianic redeemer. Um, and it doesn't matter how good things are in Israel, that's not what's going to happen to the world. Um, so it is a very, very complicated place, even without all the geopolitics um, and complications that exist otherwise. Um, and, and we should know that like throughout Jewish history, there have been really powerful attempts to try to reconcile the different ideas of different Zionist thinkers who also did not all agree on what the state should be, right? For a Achadaam, it was supposed to be a spiritual center. For Herzl, it was just supposed to be a—well, for Herzl, really, he wanted Vienna in the Middle East. That was really what he envisioned. Um, he thought of it as a modern, sophisticated European capital, and it'll just happen to be in Tel Aviv, which is more or less what he got, actually, in Tel Aviv. Um, and uh, and for others, it was going to be a socialist workers' paradise, because that's you know what the the Bengurians of the world sort of thought of as they were laborers, especially the people like Aleph Dalit Gordon, who was a full-on, he was so socialist that I would call him a communist, if that wasn't such a bad word these days. But when he was a communist, it wasn't such a bad word. Um, and, uh, and so the, uh, I mean, The the kibbutz was the perfect communist experiment. That's what it was. A kibbutz was a place where children were raised collectively, and and everything was a collective. So there were so many different competing visions about what Israel was supposed to be, that even when we speak to each other and we talk about Israel, we think we're talking about the same thing. But we're talking about lots and lots of different things throughout Jewish history. And uh, pre-Passover, it is good to know that uh, although we are blessed to live in a time when there is an Israel, um, that doesn't make it uncomplicated or easy. All right, questions, comments? Wasn't there a tribe that went to Russia? Wasn't there a Well, there was a tribe called the Kazakhs um, that lived in the Urals that converted to Judaism. Uh, and uh, they eventually disappeared. Um, but we do, have, uh, we do have some like solid evidence that there were. And in fact, that's what Yehuda Halevi makes his uh, great philosophical work, the Kuzari. Halevi was one of those rare, he was a, a philosopher and a poet. Um, the Khuzari is all based on, it's a historical fiction, but it's based on this, which is the king of the Khazars um, invites a Christian, a Muslim, a philosopher, and a Jew, and each of them presents their case and then he decides to convert to Judaism because Jews make the best case um, because it's written by a Jew. Uh, so, Going once. Yes, Rosa. So I have a question. I'm only looking here to see if there are questions, by the way. I am not like checking my email. Please know that. OK, yes, go ahead. Why do the ultra-Orthodox Jews live in Israel if it wasn't created because of the Messianic Age? Well, there are two separate reasons. One is because it happens to be a very good place to live. It's just a very good place to live if you're an ultra-Orthodox Jew, right? There's a big community there and so on. And the other reason is because you're close to the holy sites of Judaism. You can pray at the wall, you can go to Sfat. I mean, this is the, but, but that doesn't mean that they believe that it should be a Jewish state run by secular Jews. Now, there also is this element of self-interest that there are religious parties in the Knesset, and and they generally don't say, oh, we don't think it's a legitimate state, but even those who really don't believe it's a legitimate state still think, so I will use the resources of this illegitimate state to help Judaism and Jews, by diverting funds to yeshivas, which is what you ought to do, whether the place is run by you know whether whether you're in Brooklyn or you're in uh, or you're in Jerusalem, it's a very pragmatic approach. So everybody, look, everybody to some extent is ruled by pragmatism over principle, you know, and and. We always attack other people's when they're not living up to their principles. Um, But it can be done to all of us in different ways. It's just other people's conflicts are more evident to us than our own. And as far as they're concerned, like, if the state is going to be, if the money of the state is going to be available so that I can build yeshivot, I'm doing God's work. So yeah. It's scary, the fighting in Israel, and all the enemies are watching it, and it could lead to destruction? Yes. Next question. Now, um, I mean, I, the, some historical perspective is, of course, Jews have always fought. Um, I, I don't know how many of you remember, but I mean, Ben-Gurion uh, sank a ship called the Altalena that was filled with Jewish fighters. Um, Jews were Fighting with Jews, uh, and especially at the founding of the state, not everybody was uh, was on the same page. Um, and throughout, and and also the the one I mean, this is it's this is the subject of another class. But the fighting in Israel is on so many different vectors, it's not just religious secular. A lot of it, a lot of it is Ashkenazi Mizrahi, is Middle Eastern Jews. And because Ashkenazi Jews, I know this will shock you, but when they came to Israel, they thought of themselves as the norm, the standard, and the ideal, right? That's what we were. We were the Jews. And Jews who came from Arab lands were the backward, They didn't have the, you know, they didn't come from Western European culture. And they were very badly treated in all sorts of ways. Um, and, And this is kind of like, it's kind of their revenge in a way. It's like you no longer get to say that this is the way the country is run. It's going to be run differently. And that's a huge fault line as well in Israel. And after all, somebody who grows up in... America looks at politics very differently than somebody whose family comes from Yemen. That makes sense. Um, so the the fighting that's going on now, depending on who you ask, is as serious or more serious than any political divides in recent memory. But it's also very it's very much more complicated than. Um, most american jews assume <clears throat> and i don't know how it will come out but i am i am hopeful that one way or another there will be a compromise that will help stitch part of the community together but yeah it's frightening yeah That is true. So, you know, I didn't say right, left. That's a different division. That's a, still another division, right? There's a division. There's a division between. But that's. But the ones who are on the far right, who are Ashkenazi Jews, are almost all religious on the right. So I said there's a division between the religious and the non-religious. There's a division between the Mizra. Look, I had a. I had a. As I told you, I had a. I don't remember if I said this in a sermon or somewhere. I had a cab driver in Israel who said to me, basically, this is our turn now. They put us down. He was a Mizrahi. I don't know what country he was from. I think he told me. Maybe Iraq. They put us down for years and years. Now it's our turn. He didn't care about the niceties of judicial reform. He cared about getting. And, and if you say, but Netanyahu is Ashkenazi, I'll, I'll use the analogy I used before. Trump was rich, but poor people, thought in some way, they made an identity with him, he's my kind of person, okay? And with Begin, and then again with Netanyahu, it's true that they're both Ashkenazi, but for the Mizrahi community, they see, they feel like they are seen in a way that other politicians do not see them. So, it's very complicated, it really is. And then, of course, there is this admixture of um, what what I think you can only call Jewish chauvinism. Uh, That is also, because don't forget that, what, 20 to 30% of the population are Arab Israelis. So there's that as well. It's complicated and it's difficult, and I don't pretend to have any, God knows I don't have any solutions. Um, I can just tell you that it's, uh, it's not easy. Well, no country has a right to tell another country what to do. We can tell them what we think. We can tell them what seems better or worse. I mean, here's the problem. I understand—look, I'm very reluctant, as you can hear. I'm not going to go say, you know, Netanyahu, you got to do this. The problem, though, is that Israelis—I mean, American Jews do it, too, okay? Israelis have it both ways. When they want support from American Jews, they solicit support from American Jews. When we say things they don't like, they say you have no right to express an opinion. Um, so it's not one way or the other. It's really both ways. Um, when they don't want, when, when, when one party doesn't want uh, a politician from the other party to go speak at APAC, which has happened, it's because they, don't want the Ameri- they want the American Jews on their side, not on the other side. And we're part of a country that gives Israel billions of dollars. As a member of a country that gives billions of dollars, sure, we're allowed to say. On the other hand, you have to have a certain modesty. My kid's not going to go into the army. It's not going to patrol the border. So I think both are true. You can say, look, this is how it seems to me. And the policies that Israel makes that affect me, like we won't accept your conversions, but we'll accept his conversions, those I'm allowed to say something about because that's the part of Israel that is a worldwide Jewish entity. But I mean, on almost any question, all of us know less than we think we do. So you have to keep that in mind. Okay, two more and then I got to finish up one, two. Go ahead. Yes. Yeah. I, I don't know. I mean, you can argue it any way that, that AIPAC didn't want Rich to speak. They might say—it might look like Jews don't support Israel, or it might look, since I think it would be very hard for somebody to say AIPAC doesn't support Israel, like there are some things that AIPAC thinks are wrong. Yeah? That's sort of my follow-up question, whether I think we should support Israel, no matter what the leader. I don't, I think look, the don't you— Do you leader. not support America when it has a president that you don't like? You still support America. Right. I agree. say because of the leader they don't like, they're not going to support them anymore. I know. And that's very sad. I agree. I think that it is very sad, and it's short-sighted, and it's usually people who don't know the country. Um, you can say I don't support the government. I think that's perfectly legitimate. I don't support this prime minister. I don't support that president. I think they're no good. I think they should be gone. That's fine. To say I don't support the country, yeah. Yeah. Um, that's uh, foolish and tragic. So, all right, one last one. Jerry, last question. So, you start off by saying that, that this would relate to Passover. So, do you want to say a couple of words before we go about tying this to Passover? Oh, no, no, no. I said that the Torah class is going to be about Passover and, oh, uh, okay. and, the, and, and on Shabbat. The only way that this ties to Passover is that's where they're headed, right? Exactly, that's where they're going. Um, by a circuitous route, they are headed to Israel. Exactly. So, and with that, thanks very much. Thank you.